Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. So what I want to do uh, is pray for us once more, and then we're going to dive into God's word in the text that Paul just read for us. So Lord Jesus, we come to you uh, as a people so grateful, grateful for so many things. Um, And Lord, we pray that uh, even as we celebrate uh, the freedom that America provides, uh, we understand that the greatest liberty we experience in this world is nothing compared to the liberty we have in Jesus. And so, Lord, we thank you for places where culture reminds us of the goodness of grace that is for us in Jesus Christ. But, Lord, because you have solved our greatest problem, Lord, we understand that when we encounter issues and hardships and trials in this life, um, that your hope, that your grace, and that your relief is not far removed from us. So I pray that we labor well in light of your wonderful gospel, which saves us. We pray this in your name, amen. I remember hearing a story once of someone who moved to New York City, and she talked about how overwhelming it was to comprehend the amount of homeless people that were in the city. And what was interesting is she described as she lived there longer, it just became common to her. And soon what was once something which stood out became common, and then what was common simply became unseen. She didn't even notice them anymore. And what's interesting is I think that this encounter is really a microcosm of our life in a world that is stained by sin. We see pain and brokenness, and we see it everywhere. And because of that, we become blind almost to those who are hurting because it just becomes so ordinary. We live in a world where it's easy to become accustomed, regardless of your religious faith, we become accustomed to the reality that there is brokenness, there is pain, and there is hurt in our world. The loss of loved ones, loss of a job, loss of a house, natural disaster, injustices. We've all seen how some of these might grab the ear of your neighbor or of your church or even of our culture for a moment, but it's not long before culture moves on, and you become forgotten. I think we see this at a national level right now, even when it takes all of America's government and social speakers, they can't even understand or communicate the issue of suffering, those who are oppressed, those who are wounded, and those who are hurting. We are seeing that even on a national level with all of our resources, it is hard to see and to understand the extent to which people may be hurting in real ways. This is true on an individual level. It applies even to me as a pastor of this church. I am not capable of understanding all the intricacies and nuances of all of the people who are members at our church, even if it's only you guys who show up on a 5th of July Sunday. None of our elders can completely understand the intricacies which might burden your heart, which might cause you anxiety, which might keep you up at night, which might have you feeling at times alone and forgotten. 
You see, from a public perspective, we know that it is nearly impossible to make everyone who feels anxious, nervous, or hurt, heard. We can't. There's always people who feel forgotten. There's always people who are left in their hurt. And from an individual, from a private perspective, we know how lonely it can be to feel like no one considers you, to feel like you are all alone in your own pain or your suffering. But this is why the words of 1 Peter today that Paul just read for us are of astounding truth for us and wonderful hope in this time. Because what we see is that for those who suffer, for those who feel the anxiety of this life, there is one who sees you and considers you in the midst of it. That God himself knows exactly the burdens, the fears, and the concerns of your heart. He knows the weight you carry, and even more than that, he wants to help you with it. You see, the reason why we have become accustomed to pain in this world is because our world is broken with sin. This world's biggest problem is that way back with the first man and first woman, we rejected God, and that was sin, and the world has been stained with the consequences, the pain of sin ever since. But as the new Adam, the new head of humanity, Jesus Christ came, and through his work on the cross, he is the one who brings us back to God. If Jesus can bring us back to God on the cross through faith and repentance, Then we have in the midst of all of the burdens of life in this brokenness, a hope in the midst of it. That despite all that we experience, we know we have been brought back to God with a sure and steady hope of Jesus. And that this creator God desires good for us. You see, God sees the sufferer. And it's his desire in this text to do two things, depending upon where you are. The first is that he might call you for the first time to Jesus to see how he solves everything that hurts you. But then secondly, to those who see Jesus, to see that it is Jesus who will pull you through, that it is Jesus who will endure you through the hardest of all sufferings. And what we're going to see today in the conclusion of 1 Peter is that the goodness of God is greater than the grief of this world. The goodness of God is greater than the grief of this world. And if you're not a believer in here, we're so glad you're here. We're glad you're watching or listening online. And what I hope you see are the ways in which your hardships in life show you that there is no one who cares for you like the God of the world has set forth to care for you through Jesus Christ. There is no one able to help you and to hold you and to actually solve what really hurts you like God is able to. For those of you who are Christians, Peter is going to show you how God has given you this wonderful gift in your salvation, and that in this salvation, you are able to understand the plan of God, which might pull you into hard places, but where Jesus actually helps you progress through by providing you a hope beyond this world. And we're going to see this in three ways today. Peter's going to point three things out to us that help us see God's goodness in difficult times. First, he's going to show us humility and its hope. Then he's going to show us resistance and its enemy. And then lastly, he's going to show us God and his grace. We're going to spend a lot more time on the first point than we will on the second two points. Um, But join me as we finish, uh, start to finish 1 Peter. We're going to start with 2 Peter next week because um, I think together they're good for us as a church right now. But let's start by reading verses 6 and 7 
of 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So if you remember last week, if you just look a little north of this text in your Bible, Peter finished the last section by speaking to the whole church and calling the whole church to clothe themselves in humility towards one another. And here, Peter is still calling for humility, but the object of that humility changes from being humble towards one another to now it's humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. And this is our first point today, humility and its hope. To a church that is beginning to feel the waves of suffering, of persecution, of hostility, Peter's calling them to be humble and to know hope. If you've grown up around the church, I imagine you've heard verse seven before, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's a popular verse for mugs, for Facebook profiles, for posters, and that's because there's an astounding truth buried inside of this text. Here we have the God who created the cosmos, the infinite, endless, matchless God who cares for you. We think of how awestruck we get when, if you're of a younger demographic and you use Twitter, someone with a blue check mark responds or interacts with you, or you have a chance of meeting a celebrity or even a government official, you feel spectacular that they would acknowledge you. But here, God acknowledges you in your weakness, in your suffering, in your insecurities. He cares for you. And it is that care which is meant to drive away anxiety, and yet, don't we still wrestle with anxiety? Hasn't even the last four months of our lives shown us that we can still find this to be crippling. Yet here is this verse, cast your anxieties on this wonderful God because he cares for you. And yet we still feel frustrated, we still feel vulnerable, we still feel alone and fragile. Why is that? Why is it that our lives can have an experience so opposite what this text is clearly stating? Well, I think part of that is because we do live life in a broken world. Sin is serious. It has real ramifications. If sin didn't actually disrupt our life and didn't really cause us harm, then Jesus didn't need to come and die for it. But sin is a huge problem. And because of that, there are going to be things in our life which are fearful and painful. And so when we look at a text like this, we want to begin to unravel. This is where I'm going to spend the most amount of time on this because we want to actually look at what this text is saying in full so that we can actually drain the fullest amount of relief, of joy, of satisfaction from what Peter is talking about here. Because even though this verse holds out a wonderful hope, it is harder than we ever imagine to actually experience this relief. Why is it? Because it starts with the command, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. The first thing people, Peter calls people with burdens to is humility. Humbling themselves under the mighty hand of God. When Peter is using this mighty hand of God metaphor, what he's referring to is that God's hand is steering all of the difficult, all of the painful circumstances in your life. Even when we're in difficult circumstances, Peter is calling you to understand that that God is involved leading, guiding, using even the very details of those moments. 
And this is really important for us to understand because the first thing we often do when we encounter any sort of suffering in life is we try to wrestle the metaphorical steering wheel back from God, don't we? We try to be like, this guy is probably a little old to be driving right now. We should, he, might, he doesn't really know where we need to go. He clearly doesn't understand that this is a pothole. And perhaps I should just you know, nudge him out and I should take the wheel. Because if I were driving, we would avoid all of this mess. He might need some help with the directions. But when we zoom out of our own experience of our own life, when we look at the course of history we see that God often intentionally plans and leads into difficult situations for our good. And the greatest place we see this is actually the cross of Jesus. In fact, when we look at the cross of Jesus, we can humbly trust God's hand even when life is confusing and difficult. You see, this letter, 1 Peter, is written by Peter, um, and he also speaks in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, and look at how Peter speaks of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and its relationship to God's plan. Beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so here we see there's this wickedness. Sinful men killed Jesus. Why? According to God's predetermined, definite, and foreknown plan. If God used the seemingly impromptu, chaotic, painful, and unjust murder of his son to bring salvation to those who are eternally lost, don't you think he might be able to be trusted in the chaos of your life as well? Don't you think he has shown that in the moment, a moment of greatest suffering, the only truly innocent sufferer, Jesus Christ, in the moment of greatest evil, the only one who rightly deserved no harm to be done to them, that if God worked that for good, he can work the dark moments of your life for good as well. You see, if you want to know what it looks like to trust God, it means that you might have to, at times, humbly come into moments where you can only trust God. For pilots of planes, uh, there are a couple certifications you can have when it comes to navigating and flying. There is IFR and VFR. VFR being visual flight rules and IFR being instrument flight rules. And visual flight rules says that you can fly the plane when you can visually see what's going on. Right? You're trusted to go and navigate and see a mountain and say, see mountain, steer around mountain. I see it and I'm not gonna hit it. I can see where the airport is, I can see where the mountain is, I can see where the other planes are. But then, if it gets dark, if it gets cloudy, if it gets stormy, and you only have this visual rule, you can't fly anymore. You have to land. In order to fly when it gets dark, when it gets gloomy, when there are clouds, you have to have instrument flight rule. And what this means is if you've ever been in an airplane and you look outside and all you see are clouds, the truth is your pilot only sees that too. And yet he's been trained to look at this panel in front of him 
which gives him all of these gauges and all of these information. And even when you can't see where mountains are, you can't see which way is up, you can't tell which way you're leaning, they've learned and been certified to trust the instruments to steer them to safety, to keep them away, away, away from danger, and to make sure that they're not thinking they're going up when they're actually going down, or going down when they're actually going up. They've learned to trust their instruments at times when they're disoriented for their own safety. You see, humility in suffering allows Christians the wonderful privilege of trusting God as our primary instrument for navigation. When we cannot see what lay ahead, God is asking you to set your gaze on the cross, trusting that while we might be disoriented and while we might not understand what lies in front of us, God does. He is not confused. He is not lost. He is not asleep at the wheel. But instead, he's calling us to trust him, even when we don't know what's ahead. You see, humbling ourselves requires us to trust God in places where we cannot trust ourselves or our circumstances. But the fruit of that is that just like a pilot, we can actually fly when no one else can. We can get where we're going when other people cannot. But this kind of humility, this humility of trusting God is not this sort of stoic humility that we often think of when it comes to suffering and entrusting ourselves. Sometimes we can understand that God is sovereign and we just humbly trust him with the sense that we're kind of just a cog in the system. There's this stoicism of where we just know humility means he's in control and we're not, and so we're just going to take suffering like a good subject and be emotionless inside of it. Now, it's true that from a biblical perspective, you ought to humbly submit to God simply because he is God and you are not. If a God like the God of the Bible really exists, you have no choice but to obey him. We understand this in any other aspect of culture. You understand this if the CEO were to walk into your office and tell you what you needed to do, that you were beheld to that. You understand that if the president were to come and say something, you're beheld to that. You understand that if a professor asked you to write this way on exam, you're beheld to that. And if a God like this, a creator God who breathed us into existence, says anything, we are by nature beheld to it. And to disobey him is to sin. But more than just being a CEO, who by nature of his position has power, God is a good God. He is far better and far greater than any authority we can think of in our world because in the midst of his call for humility, he provides two wonderful hopes for those who subject themselves to him even in difficult times. Look back with me and see these hopes in verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We humble ourselves before God because the same hand which we will sometimes find ourselves under is the same hand which will one day exalt us. And more than that, he will do so precisely because he cares for you. Why ought we to humble ourselves before God? Because that same God who steers the world has promised to exalt us and to care for us in Jesus Christ. You see, one thing this verse does is it begins to humble those who might approach God with arrogance, and it begins to comfort those who might feel exacerbated at their life circumstances. 
Because first of all, these verses actually humble us all the more. The, the word structure of verse 7 is structured in such a way where the casting of anxieties on God is actually defining the head verb of humbling yourself. So what does it look like, according to Peter, to humble yourself? It looks like casting your anxieties upon God. And this seems like a simple thing, yet how many times do we not share our experience with God? Do we not invite God into our suffering because we think that God would be unconcerned? It's so small. It's so silly. He's the God of the universe. I can deal with this. And it presents as this sort of false humility. God's got more important things to deal with. But what Peter is saying is that's not humility. It's hubris. That's selfish. That's arrogance to think that this God who says he wants to care for you doesn't really want to care for you. This God who wants to know you really doesn't want to know you. When we wrestle with the anxiety of life in a broken world and refuse to go to God with that, we are not exercising humility. We cannot humble ourselves without being willing to take the smallest of our anxieties to God because he cares for us. If you want to experience God's care for you, you must go to him with the things that need care. This text exposed a lot in my heart this week, just even thinking of uh, my own life with COVID and the church and a building fund and, and all of the variables that go along with it. I'm one who's prone to just, you know, put it on my back and just say, I know God is in control. I know this works for my good and I'm just going to keep walking and keep going even when the weight gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And I feel good about that. Like there's some great masculine theological soldier in me who just works onward, taking what's there for the glory of the cross. But I realized This was exposing an arrogance in my mind of not taking real things, real burdens, real issues caused by sin in my heart and sin in our world and not taking it to the only God who can conquer sin. And how foolish that was. God is not going to be shocked at your strength. He's not going to be, this guy, I thought this would crush him and he is just a stud. Have Have you seen this guy? Look at how good he is. He hasn't prayed once. Like, is that really what we think God does? Because isn't that how a lot of us act? But God, being good and rich in mercy, has called us to something better. Charles Spurgeon, a British pastor, said this. He said, Christian, do not dishonor your religion by always wearing a brow of care. Come, cast your burden upon the Lord. You are staggering beneath a weight which your father would not feel. What seems to you a crushing burden would be to him as but the dust, would be to him but as the dust of the balance. A small dust, reading's hard, but as a small dust on the balance. You see, humble Christians, Christians who endure in suffering, are Christians who take even the smallest of their emotions and bring it to the God big enough to care for them. So do you do that? When you encounter hardships in your life, are you one who thinks that you have what it takes? I saw a blue check mark pastor tweet yesterday and just says, you are all that you need. <laughs> hasn't read First Peter. We are not all that we need. Jesus is what we need. 
And even in the midst of that, how good is it that Jesus doesn't begrudgingly take those things from us, but he is asking for them because he cares for us. I think many of us need to be humbled by this text and realize we ought to go to God with things that we try to keep on our own. But there's a flip side to this. There are those who realize they are not enough. And they constantly cast their anxiety and they cast it and they cast it and they cast it and they cast it and they they feel no relief and they wonder, does this matter? Does this even work? Does God really care for me? And this is why I love this text because it's actually showing us the way in which God cares for us, the way in which we can actually trust in this loving, good God. You see, we can only properly cast our anxiety on God when we understand the truth that at the proper time, he will exalt us. You see, what is Peter referring to here? He's referring to what's been a common theme in this book, the second coming of Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. When Jesus appears with all of his glory, that is the time where Christians will be exalted, where those who are here will meet Jesus, where those who have died will be raised in Jesus. This glory that comes at the second coming of Jesus. And we can only cast our anxieties on a God whom we trust. And it's in this future hope where Peter is calling you to place all of that trust. It's in this future hope where God shows himself as ultimately trustworthy because in this future hope, this new heavens and this new earth, this resurrection through Jesus Christ where God has triumphed over everything, why wouldn't we trust him if he's able to give us not only new life spiritually but new life physically in a new world? You see, our greatest problem was that sin stood against us but if Jesus has borne that sin for me and for you, And if we repent and believe in him as the gospel calls us to, then this promise of resurrection life is the hope we need it to make it through everything in this life because we know, however hard it gets, that one day the resurrection will sort it all out. One day God will finally and fully take care of everything that hurts us. You see, oftentimes we think that this casting anxiety on God is kind of like this magical incantation. If I read this verse enough, I'll actually convince myself that these things don't hurt. But a biblical casting acknowledges all of the hurt. It acknowledges all of the pain because it's real. And it's the reality of that pain that Jesus came for those who would believe in him so that he might take it from you. So when you're in the midst of suffering and you want to give your anxieties to God, Peter is calling you to look at what Jesus has assured for you, not in this life, but in the next life. Look at the glory that is to be yours. Look at the thing which he says in 1 Peter 1 is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in God for you. Casting your anxiety on God is not wishful thinking or blind ignorance which ignores pains. Instead, it's realizing that if you have faith in Jesus, one day all of it will be finally and fully removed. Only Jesus can fix the things that wound us in this life. And sometimes we get a little overzealous and we think that Jesus needs to fix everything now. And we try to bring what God is holding in heaven and we try to bring it down here. And we become frustrated when our experience doesn't match it. But instead, Peter is saying, you who are here, you who are in the broken, know that that hope is not just words. That hope is real 
and that hope is for you. So when we suffer, we cast our anxiety on God by sharing with him all of our fears and concerns, knowing that one day he has promised to finally and fully heal us. And you see, it's not until you understand that future grace, which is ours, that you really actually understand the way in which God cares for you. God cares for you so much that he assured you of this hope by sending his son to die for your sins. You see what's interesting? This text talks about anxiety and it brings this comfort of, of Christ caring for you. Jesus himself in Matthew 6 is talking to his disciples saying, don't be anxious about today. Look at the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. They not sow or reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly father cares for them. And then he says something astounding. Are you not of more value than them? You see, in the midst of our anxiety, these two texts come and they remind us of God's heart, God's heart towards us. If we are in Christ Jesus, God will not be unconcerned with you because he sees you as his son. For God to be unconcerned with believers who are covered by the blood of Jesus is to think that God would be displeased with his son. But God sees you and cares for you, not because of your stunning inner beauty, but because of the wonderful blood of Jesus, which covers all who come to him. How valuable are you to God? Valuable enough that you're covered by the blood of his son. You see, the death Jesus died was not just to remove the the consequence of sin and the ultimate condemnation from it, but to ultimately remove all of sin's woes from our world. It was a promise, a removal of sin and all of its effects. That is why when Paul in Colossians 3 says, he says, when, you, when your life is hidden with Christ in God, our hope in suffering is that we are hidden in Christ. That's how much God cares for you. And look at what Jesus himself says in John, or look at what John says in John 16, 33. Jesus says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the hope we have in seasons of hardship. And as Christians, when we encounter suffering in this world, we need to tell our anxiety where to go. We must tell our anxiety to go to the cross. As the disciples, when Jesus was going into Jerusalem, they cast their cloaks on the donkey that took Christ to the cross. As Christians, when we suffer with anxiety, we must cast it on Christ who carries us all the way to glory and know that God's promises have not forgotten us. That Jesus will get us there because he is the one who gave his life for us. And it's important that we understand verses six and seven before we move on to anything else that comes. Those of you who have done financial peace here at church, you know Dave Ramsey's zero balance budget. His big thing is tell your money where to go. And here, Peter is telling you where to put your anxiety. You as a Christian, when you encounter, because you will, hardships in this world that cause your heart to be burdened, you must tell your anxiety where to go because if you don't tell it where to go, someone else might try to help you. Someone else might offer their hand. And we see this someone else in verses eight through nine. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, 
knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So Peter makes a unique connection here in his book. Here the devil's tempting and devouring tendencies are tied to the suffering of the church, which means this. The devil knows that when suffering and anxiety rise in your life and in your heart, you are prone to find a solution to that anxiety by turning to sin, by giving way to temptation instead of faithfully trusting in Jesus. And this is his second point. To see the goodness of God, we must understand resistance and its enemy. You see, if we lose sight of the care and hope that is for us in God's mighty hand, then Satan will surely offer his hand to our aid. And note the continued emphasis between this humility and temptation of trusting God and saying no to sin that James picks up in his letter, James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You see, humility allows us to see that God's plans lead for good. And arrogance in responding in sin always leads to death. In Lord of the Rings, Gollum offers to help Frodo carry the ring to Mordor to act as a guide. And he's certainly helpful at times. But those of you who've read the book or watched the movies, you know that Gollum's ultimate plan is to kill Frodo and to take the ring for himself. You see, if we fail to trust God in seasons of hardship, the devil will swoop into your life like a seedy debt consolidator and promise to take all of the burdens that you have at the price of your soul. He will come and promise to help you to lift these burdens. And the dangerous thing is, for a moment it might. But in the end, it shows his teeth. Satan understands that sometimes we are prone to doubt God. We're prone to doubt God in that he works for good even in the hard situations of life. Which means that Satan often sets up shop at the gates of suffering. Like a lion, Peter uses this analogy, he frightens us with his mighty roar into turning away from hope in God and instead trusting the comforts of sin. He tries to shake us with claps of thunder from the instruments of grace when all we can see is darkness. I love this story. Those of you who are doing the F260 Bible reading plan, you read this a couple months ago. In 2 Kings, we read of the Assyrian army coming to Jerusalem where the tribe of Judah is holed up and they're in battle. And the officials from, this was normal in the day, the officials from Judah would go out and they would meet the officials from Assyria to see if they could negotiate terms or if they were just going to fight. And the Assyrian official comes up to Judah brimming with pride and he begins to say, you're no match for Assyria. There is no nation who has stopped the king of Assyria. There is no God who has stopped the king of Assyria. Why do you think you and your little city will stop the king of Assyria? And the Jewish officials say, hey, would you mind speaking to us in Aramaic and not in Hebrew so that the people who are behind the wall don't hear you? And the Assyrian envoy knew that this was because the Jewish officials didn't want the people inside the city to become fearful 
and to doubt the king. And so what they do is they do the exact opposite. The spokesperson from Assyria raises his voice in a loud voice. And look at what he says in 2 Kings, verses 28 through 35. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah, that's the king of Judah, deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat of his own vine, and each of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink water of his own system until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain, of wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. Do you hear the serpent there? You will not surely die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath, of Arpad? Where are the gods of the Sepharvar, that word, Sepharvaim, of Hena, of Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hands that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? The lion roars. He tries to scare them into disobedience. But the remarkable thing is that the people of Judah don't respond. And in 2 Chronicles, we read what King Hezekiah said to these people prior to this moment. This is in 2 Chronicles 32, verses 6 through 8. And he set combat commanders over the people and gathered them together in the square at the gate of the city and spoke encouragingly to them, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. You see, the lion will roar in your life. And in that moment, the only thing which will cause you to not fall is the encouraging and comforting words of the King of Kings. When you suffer and the armies of your world are at your door, armed with anxiety and angst and anger and whatever other emotions follow, you might become susceptible to the lion's roar. You might hear it and it might shake you. And the tension of this is, is the devil's roar as a lion is both terrifying but also seductive. That's why he's calling us to resist it. If you hear a lion roar in the wild, you'll probably just run away. We don't need to tell you to resist it. But this is how dangerous the devil is. Where he tries to both scare us from thinking that God is incapable of working for his good while simultaneously showing that only sin can provide the good that God promises. To say to those hiding behind the walls, I have a better land. We have better grain. 
better olive trees, better systems, better sex lives, better budgets, better entertainment, better adventures. Why are you trusting this king? Why are you hiding to a king who hasn't delivered anyone? But Satan cannot provide his promise. He seeks in all that he whispers only to destroy. And if you're not a believer in here today, I can promise you that if you haven't already, which I don't know how you've lived in the last four months and haven't, you will feel the broken weight of this world. In the midst of that, you will encounter the voice of the lion. And he will try to tell you to resolve that tension you feel in a myriad of things. In activism, in escapism, in sex, in wealth, in some sort of group identity. But ultimately, even if that works for a while, you will show that this king is no king. And this lion is only teeth. That's because it's the only true lion of Judah, Jesus Christ, who has promised relief from this world. And the gospel calls us to humble ourselves and to come to him, to repent of our sin because we see the weight of this lion who did not devour us but laid down his life for us, who took all of the burden of not only the physical brokenness we feel but the cosmic spiritual weight and the consequence of sin because he cares for you. If you're a Christian, consider this text as a warning to be vigilant when suffering and anxiety come into your life. Suffering provides an ingress for sin. And in those moments, be watchful, be alert, stay vigilant, talk to others in the church, talk to your spouse, talk to people in your community group, ask them to help you when you are anxious and when you are suffering because it's in those moments that we seek peace. And sometimes, We turn away from the peace of Jesus and look to the peace of sin. What I love, one practical point here that's helpful for us in in all that America is experiencing is he actually calls them to look at the way in which all of the brotherhood is being persecuted throughout the world. One thing that gives us hope when we look at America, when we look at everything that's happening here, and we might say rightfully so that many of the glory days might be behind us, we look at churches in deeply broken and persecuted countries And we see Christians following God faithfully, loving each other faithfully, showing us by their actions that we can trust that Jesus is working for our good even when governments are not. And that leads us to obey. Resist the devil, Peter says, firm in the faith, knowing that even if the world stands against you, Jesus stands with you. We cannot afford to be thoughtless of our hope, for to lose hope is to trust another hand, and that's what Peter's after. There's one hand to trust and is not the handout of sin. I love how Martin Luther captured this. We sang this, I think, last week in A Mighty Fortress. A Mighty Fortress says this, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. And this is the hope held out in this text, is even though this world has devils filled, threatening to undo us, we know that for those who trust in Jesus, we will triumph in the end. This is where Peter concludes in verses 11, or 10 through 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, 
confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here we see our last point today. We see God and his grace. Why do we not need to worry about the roar of the devil? Why can we hopefully endure when things are hard? Because we know at the same hand, which might at times force us down to cleanse us as gold is cleansed in fire, it will run they restore all who are in Christ Jesus. Peter is after in all things this future hope of the Christian. Do we have this future hope, church? If we do not have this future hope, we will always be distracted and we will always seek to elevate the trials of our day to something which is immediate and ultimate. But only when we have the hope of heaven fixed for us can we ever understand that Christ has cared for what is ultimate. The emphasis of this text is that even though we suffer, even though we'll be opposed, one day in God's perfect timing, the God of all grace, how much grace? All of it. He who called you to eternal glory in Jesus Christ, he himself in all of his splendor and carefulness will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you because it is he who has ultimate dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, Peter's wonderful wordplay here is after a little while of suffering is a forever of glory. And in light of that hope, we can humble ourselves and endure. To be called by the grace of Jesus Christ is to be saved by grace through faith and repentance. The same hand which guides the world calls hearts to repentance in Jesus Christ. The same hand which often blinds us in suffering is the same hand which peels back the calluses on our eyes so that we might see the wonder of his son who came to die for our sins. The same hand who created all the goods in this world that we enjoy as good is the same hand that has promised something more good, more better, more wonderful to be hoped in in heaven. And this God will one day take the broken saint weary from life in this world and he will restore him. He will, another word, another way to to translate that word is that he will mend you. I love that. Like delicate fabric in the hand of a master tailor. God will mend us in our brokenness. Torn and tattered, we come to the cross, but in his grace, he makes us whole. With gentleness, he takes us, and with mercy, he remakes us. But only who gets this wonderful remaking grace? Those who stand firm. Those who continue on in the faith. Look at Peter's closing. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. In other words, this is a guy who's probably delivering Peter's letter. I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greeting. So does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Why did Peter write this letter? to remind you that this is the true grace of God. That to know Christ is to know God's goodness for you. 
that we need not fear, we need not turn, we need not look elsewhere, for God has given us everything in Jesus. Stand firm in it. When suffering comes, will you stand firm in it? When anxiety grasps your heart, will you stand firm in it? When terror seeks to terrorize and lions seek to roar, will you stand firm in it? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and at the proper time, he will exalt you. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. For this God, he has promised in Jesus and confirmed in the resurrection of his son that he and he alone is capable to restore, to confirm, to strengthen, and establish you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let us as the church seek to humbly live this out as obedient children cared for by a loving Savior in his church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you equip us for things that we uh, cannot see. We pray that it's in the midst of the confusion of clouds that we understand how deeply you care for us. Lord, we pray that we become a humble church, eager to go to you with the concerns of our heart, trusting that in Jesus, it will one day all be sorted out. Lord, I pray that you work the hope of heaven deeper into our hearts. Because if, if you are not able, if you're not gracious to grasp us that vision, we are so prone to turn to visions of glory in this world. Protect us from sin by making much of Jesus in our lives. Give us strength to resist what might seem attractive by showing to us the greater attractiveness and the true goodness in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to obey when things are hard by truly trusting that Jesus has done everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. We pray this in your name. Amen.